Hello and welcome to this Confectionery News podcast. I'm Oliver Nyberg, the former editor of the site and now a sustainability analyst in cocoa, coffee and tea for our publisher's new insights business, Luminar Intelligence, launching later this year. In this recording, I speak to Dr. Christy Leslie. Known as Dr. Chocolate by her colleagues, she's a lecturer at the University of Washington Bothell and author of a new book, Coco, about how the market has been shaped by geopolitics and its colonial past. You're about to hear us speak about where power lies in the cocoa market, how companies can enhance farmer participation, how to create value at origin, the future of chocolate in Africa, and whether we should be saying cocoa or cacao. Take a listen. So I'm looking at the um, the title of your um, your book, and um, I'd like to settle an old debate to to begin with. The, the title of the book is Cocoa and Not Cacao. You know, the title was given to me by Polity. However, I was very happy that it was called Cocoa, and and the reason is because that's that's what I. I have worked always in Anglophone producer countries, you know, mainly in West Africa. And here it's cocoa, you know, I mean, no one says cacao. And so I've just been used to saying cocoa for for my whole career. So I was really happy with it. I think cacao is... um, I don't know. It, it's 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 got a bit of pretentiousness to it, and I think that maybe it's it's sometimes used to elevate the 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 product um, in in a way. But it's also you know in if you're in non-anglophone producer regions, if you're in um, Spanish-speaking areas or French-speaking areas, then of course the the word is going to be cacao. Your book goes quite deeply into the politics um, of, of cocoa and uh, the, the history of the, the crop as well. So how has geopolitics shaped the cocoa market that we know today? You know, it's different geopolitics today than it would have been in the earlier stages of, of the cocoa trade. And really, um, in the past hundred years, because West Africa has been so predominant in production, um, we've, we have got to look at West Africa when we're talking about geopolitics. You know, there's, there's no escaping that region of the world because between Ivory Coast and Ghana alone, we're talking more than half the crop. And so you know, when we want to understand political power in this industry, where it comes from and and who is pressured, you know, um, in political ways, then we've got to look at West Africa. And, you know, the other the other thing to take into consideration is that while West Africa has been the predominant producer region, it has not been the predominant processing or consuming region. And so there we've, we have to look to Europe and North America and increasingly to, to Asia. And so now we've got power emanating from these locations too. And so for me, one of the things I wanted to explore was the interactions of those different kinds of power, producer power versus processing power or consumer power. And those those are they're really specific to different regions you have a whole chapter uh, on on power named power power in the market so where does power in 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 cocoa lie and has power always been divided this way no it hasn't always been divided this way because historically in in 
Central and South America, which were the the ancient cocoa producing regions, the the consumption was limited to those places as well. You know, it took it took a while for cocoa to leave um, to leave the Americas and journey to other parts of the world. So for for most of its history, cocoa was produced and processed and consumed in the same places. Um, so the the geopolitics was different. However, having said that, I don't think there is probably ever been a moment where there weren't particular kinds of power relationships all along the value chain. And I think today, you know, one of the things that was that keeps me really going in my my research into this industry is you can always find someone more powerful than somebody else really exerting that power along the supply chain. And so we can think about power within a household and who's the most, you know, who's got control over cocoa in a household. How do they exert that power over the income, for example? We can just as easily look at, you know, how do the big, the biggest chocolate companies in the world exert their power over growing countries, over consumers? And so we can look at power, just all these different levels. How much influence has the colonial past of, of West Africa had on shaping the um, where power lies? I would say quite a bit. And there is a risk, I think, of over-relying on a colonial story. And I, and I think I run that risk from time to time because it does seem to have such explanatory power, um, another kind of power. And so I think that I, but I do think it is really important to look at the colonial history and to look at the fact that France and England colonized this region of the world, you know, totally pretty much, um, at the same time as cocoa was becoming a globally much more important commodity. And so the biggest chocolate companies who were in like their nascent forms um, during the colonial period were, were, they really benefited from the fact that France and England were in West Africa colonizing and able to exert such influence on the agricultural patterns, you know, whereas people had been growing food crops before or different exports, now they were growing cocoa. And that wasn't just because colonial powers came in and told them to. Uh, farmers here adopted it enthusiastically. But at the same time, we cannot discount the fact that this new industry was building up in Europe. Colonial powers really could enforce certain things in this part of the world, and they did to benefit the, the brand new chocolate industries that were growing. So to what extent is our ancestors' legacy then of taking taking wealth from these developing nations, uh, is that still being played out today in cocoa and chocolate? That is a great question. And I do think that in some ways, yes, it is. And in some ways it is changing. And so, you know, in, in, in my book, I do write about the very challenging conversations that I have sometimes with growers here, you know, they're growing cocoa for a living. They don't make that much from it. Um, they struggle, they live on the margins and they don't really have access to chocolate. They, obviously know what chocolate is, um, but, and probably have tasted it at some point, but, you know, they see a disparity and have described it to me as a, as a racial disparity. And it's this white people overseas who came here and colonized us, you eat chocolate, right? And, and we don't eat chocolate. And so I, there, it, that, 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 
language, that discussion is exists. It's still happening. I mean, growers talk to me about this stuff. What, what does a sustainable cocoa sector in West Africa look like for you? That is a really good question. And I, one of the things that I feel most strongly about when we're talking about sustainability is that it has farmers priorities are part of any definition. I do think that one of the exertions of power in the cocoa industry recently has been that the largest companies, by that I mean the five biggest manufacturers of chocolate and or chocolate products, and the, the three largest processors in many ways have driven the conversation and set the terms of what sustainability means. And frankly, it is really hard to see how their priority could be anything but keeping supply high and price low. I mean, they're for-profit companies. That's what they want, is they want a cheap input. And, you know, it's, it's, I don't know, there's a lot of language around sustainability that doesn't necessarily state that pretty clearly, but I, that, to me, that's got to be behind discussions of sustainability when it's coming from the biggest players in this industry. That's, might not be what a farmer thinks is sustainable. You know that the, maybe a farmer ha- would say, "I want my children to want to grow cocoa." I, I raise the issue to say that it could we could see a very different definition of sustainability depending on who we talk to. And so for me, it's growers who have got to be contributing to that conversation. So how can we increase farmer participation? Because it seems to me going to a lot of um, cocoa conferences in, in, in different countries throughout the world, it means, you know, a few farmers bums on seats, potentially some farmers on, on stage. And that's that's really the extent of it. But what can we you know, really do to increase farmer participation? You know, I think it's farmer participation, I think, would involve a lot of logistical and and just thoughtful kind of structuring of, for example, the conferences that you're describing, um, which I've also been on and noticed the same pattern as you've just described. But I think that there's even another thing that has to happen, which is that you know, the people who, who are up there on the stages speaking on behalf of the largest players in this industry have got some pretty tough work to do around you know empathizing with with farmers and also maybe recognizing that they don't know all the answers because what i have seen at these same conferences and in reports and and all these things is this this extra confidence you know to the point of 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 arrogance that the answers are out there and they lie with the biggest companies and so really i mean maybe this is like a, a pipe dream of mine but you know to People in power have got to recognize that they don't know it all. What can the industry do to better engage farmers? What I would love to know is for the people who really have decision-making power around buying cocoa, around quality terms, around, you know, um, just volume decisions, I mean, around defining sustainability, you know, how much time do they spend on cocoa farms talking to farmers. And by that, I don't mean the farmers who are large landowners who have maybe been, you know, had plots of land in their families for generations who have built up wealth uh, and political power themselves in the industry, because those are the kinds of farmers that generally tend to be present uh, if any farmers are present in in industry conversations, at least internationally, um, really the it is hard to talk to the most vulnerable people 
in a cocoa farming household, and that's usually women and migrants and children. Um, but I believe that really engaging in conversations with smallholder farmers um, in these remote areas where cocoa farming is it, and that is, you know, the only way of life, and really putting in the time and being uncomfortable um, with a completely different environment to what, you know, one might be used to, um, how else can we develop empathy? You know, how else do we develop that, that, you know, feeling in ourselves without putting ourselves into an experience that's new and, and demanding that we confront something that's different. And I really, I would be really, really surprised if any of the people who hold positions of power, you know, at the global level in this industry have you know, grown up on a cocoa farm and, and know like viscerally what that means. And I think this is really kind of a dramatic difference between the largest players in the industry you know, and the craft small batch bean to bar makers. And I would never say that, you know, a hundred percent of the craft makers have done, you know, spend a lot of time on cocoa farms, but you do see some doing it and you, and, and there's a conversation about it and there's transparency around it. Like person X from, you know, company Y goes every year to this cooperative or to this farm organization and spends time with them. And this is when they arrived and this is when they left. And so, you know, you can see the documentation of, of people going and it's usually the people who are making sourcing decisions. Those people at the top who would go out there and see it, what kind of reality are they likely to be confronted with? A very challenging material existence with a lot of discomfort, physical discomfort. And so, you know, that is runs a range of you're standing out in the hot sun and there are like insects biting you that not just like a fly, but, you know, a teetsy fly um, that may have sleeping sickness or a malarial mosquito, you know, or just a horse fly that bites you. And it's just so incredibly painful. And like those things can bite like through a sneaker, you know, I mean, so, I mean, that's just not the kind of thing that people are probably confronting in their offices, um, you know, in, in Amsterdam or London or whatever. They're also likely to encounter really, really poor sanitation services. So there's not that many villages I've been, I mean, I actually have never been to a cocoa farming village in this part of the world that has plumbing. Um, so they're going to be pit toilets and they may be shared by an entire village, a communal bathroom. So, you know, this, that's open air for everyone to see. I mean, these are the conditions that I've experienced when I'm in the bush. Um, and this is, this is the, that's reality, you know, that's reality of life on, on a lot of cocoa farms. Um, very little, very challenging to get clean water, challenging to wash your clothes, challenging to cook your food. Um, certainly the range of foods on offer will be much more limited than what people are probably used to in Europe or North America. So, I mean, you know, it's everything. It's every single thing about life and the ease, the material ease that we live with, um, you know, in North America, in Europe, here in Accra, where I live, you know, it's, it's quite easy. Out on the farm, it's not easy. I mean, we've seen a lot We've seen cocoa processing increase in in origin countries, but but what about chocolate and final products in West Africa? I mean, realistically, is there ever going to be a, a big market? And might the heat, um, a disorganised retail sector, make it 
too costly to produce chocolate there. What, what, what's your view? In the cities, I believe it is possible for that market to grow substantially. And so, you know, I live in Accra and I just I, I just this morning went out to buy some chocolate to bring home with me um, to the States tomorrow. And I it was very easy for me to go and find locally made, you know, bean to bar chocolate um, beautifully done, really, you know, nicely marketed and branded. And that wasn't the case here, you know, when I very first ever came to Ghana like 20 years ago. So now there, I do think that we are seeing growth and dynamism in the, in value addition all the way to chocolate. And in a way that certainly consumers in the cities are responding to whether chocolate is going to reach the rural areas here, you know, I, I think that's a whole different question. I, I, I don't see as much of a prospect for that. And even then it would probably be really in the southern part of Ghana and, you know, across West Africa, there's a, a transition um, zone where it, when you get to the northern parts of the countries, the Sahelian zone, which is the border area to the Sahara Desert, the conditions change entirely. The infrastructure is much, much weaker. And I really seriously doubt we would see chocolate, you know, maybe available in, in those parts of, of West Africa. And one way to address this power balance that you talk about, surely, is to create value at origin. So, so, so I presume this would help. I think so. And I think, you know, as far as having access to the finished product, you know, having being able to know it and enjoy it or or be able to buy it for friends and family. I mean, just being intimate with the final product. Absolutely. That is going to increase the more, you know, bean to bar chocolate companies we see here in this part of the world. And again, whether or not how far that extends into the rural areas remains to be seen, but farmers, you know, people move in and out of urban and rural areas all the time, you know, and so it's, there's every possibility that this is going to shift people's relationship with chocolate here and, and maybe lessen that idea that has been so strongly expressed to me in the past that chocolate is for, you know, white people in Europe or America and not for people in Ghana. And let's end with something fairly, fairly topical, the cocoa price crash um, at the end of last year. What were the, the factors that led to led to that decline? really it was abundant supply and so the weather conditions were really favorable here in west africa um there were you know forecasts and, and there was a surplus actually for the um 2016-27 season and enough of a surplus that that it just made the difference to price to what extent do you do you, do you feel that uh, a focus on boosting yields for for farmers and boosting yields and productivity within sustainability programs had any influence? In aggregate and over the long term, I think any program that is boosting you know, yields is going to create more cocoa, <laughs> um, you know, as, as long as there's like not a terrible blight or, or a drought or something. Um, you know, that that's their intention. That's their goal. So they're going to impact price eventually. Whether the recent sustainability commitments and focus on yields by the biggest companies caused the most recent surplus, I think is a really big question because I, I frankly don't think that those programs have been around for long enough to have caused the kind of you know supply scenario that we saw in the last couple of years. Are we stuck with a perpetually fluctuating futures-driven cocoa market where the farmer is set to lose out? 
Not necessarily. I think that we, you know, again, the craft segment has done a beautiful job, a limited scale, because that's, you know, that's the nature of being a small, you know, craft maker is is being small. <laughs> um, but I think that, you know, there's, there's pioneering models out there right now where understanding, you know, your, your sourcing and the impact of your sourcing on a farmer's livelihood is, you know, becoming part of the conversation in the industry. And that is um, really hopeful. I think we can end it there on a positive note. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you very much. (laughs) It is such a pleasure. Thank you so much for, for having me on.